You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, this Advent, we're preaching a sermon series on rest. Rest in the sense of letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Today, I have the privilege and the challenge of speaking about resting in our finances. It's a privilege because Jesus taught extensively on money, and so I'm following in the right footsteps. But it's also a challenge for a variety of reasons. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, money itself is not evil, but the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. We can use money to accomplish God's purpose. We can also allow money to strangle that very purpose. In the church, we sometimes prefer not to talk about money. It's one of those topics many of us don't want to bring up in polite company. But Jesus didn't shy away from this topic, so neither will we. Money is a funny thing. Uh, Having more money doesn't necessarily make you worry less or be more generous. Uh, I remember hearing a story about a former UPC pastor. Now, I thought originally it was Bruce Larson, but I was corrected after the 8.30 service. It was Bob Munger. Uh, Bob Munger, after preaching a sermon on the importance of tithing to the church, um, he went out into the back, and an agitated man approached him after the service and said, you can't be serious about me giving 10% of my salary to the church. Do you have any idea how much I make? I mean, that would be a ridiculous amount of money. So Bob Munger said, well, let me pray for you. Oh, Lord, please lower this brother's salary enough so he can afford to tithe. Uh, In his book, Margin, Richard Swenson shares the yuppie maxim that money is life's report card. Our society is so captivated by earning money, uh, having money, and spending money that we can think of little else. And I would add worrying about money to that list. In our materialistic society, perhaps no passage is more practical than today's passage from Matthew which deals with our pursuit of earthly treasures. Because our treasures determine so much of what we pursue and what we do with our lives. However, to fully appreciate the message of this passage, we need to integrate it within the immediate context of Matthew, or we'll miss an important piece of the challenge of these verses. Now, preachers are taught, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. (laughs) A proof text is taking a verse out of context in support of a particular argument, often resulting in giving it a meaning that may be entirely different than what the writer 
originally intended. A good example is the verse that our senior pastor, George Hinman, preached on last week, Matthew 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Taken out of context, this verse could be misinterpreted to mean that we can't make any moral judgments, that we shouldn't think ethically about our decisions. But that's completely inconsistent with who Jesus is and what the whole of the Bible teaches. That's why it's important to remember a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. So first, we'll look at what our text for today says, and then we'll look at it in relation to its context. Our passage from Matthew contains two sayings about our treasures sandwiched around a saying about what our eyes focus on. Verse 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The word for store up and treasure come from the same Greek root, thesaurus, which means treasure. We get the English word thesaurus from that word. A thesaurus is a treasury of words. It's the same word the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says, we have this treasure in clay jars. The sentence in Matthew 6, 19 literally says, don't treasure treasures. Or do not store for yourselves treasures in a treasury on earth. Why? Because treasures on earth are never totally secure. Moths can destroy clothing and thieves can break in and steal. Rust here refers to things being eaten away, corroding, uh, and decaying. Jesus uses the imperative form. He's giving a command, which can be interpreted either as, do not treasure treasures on earth, or stop treasuring treasures on earth. What then should we do? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that we should reverse the words of Jesus. Where thy heart is, there shall thy treasure be also. So where is your heart? Verse 20 says, Treasure treasures in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Heaven is where we find our security, where our treasures are truly safe. Therefore, verse 24 tells us to be clear about who or what is our master, God or money. We can't serve two masters. The word translated master is the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. That's significant because the Jews thought that God's name, Yahweh, was so holy that they would substitute the Hebrew word Adonai, which means the Lord, whenever God's name came up in the reading of Scripture. When the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, came out, the translators continued this tradition and replaced God's word with the word kurios, Lord. Hence, what Jesus says here would bring to mind the first commandment, where God says, I am the Lord your God, 
thou shalt have no other gods beside me. You either serve the one true God or you serve a false God like money. You can't have it both ways. It's interesting that this section follows just a few verses after Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, where we're told to pray for our daily bread. Uh, notice, not our daily cake, uh, not our daily all-you-can-eat buffet dinner. In other words, for more than we need. And it precedes the section where Jesus tells us not to worry. In other words, don't put your trust in money. Put your trust in God instead, the one who knows all of our needs, cares for each one of us, offers us true security, and promises us hope in the resurrection. Sandwiched in between these two passages is a curious section about the eye. It says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, even I, as a non-scientist, can have a general understanding of how a human eye works from a modern perspective, courtesy of the internet. So as I understand it, light comes from the outside, it passes through the cornea and onto the retina of your eye, creating electrical impulses that, to the brain, and that establishes images in the mind. That is not the way that people in the first century thought that the eye works. In the first century, the eye was not the receiver of light. The, the eye was the source of light. When you looked at something, light stream from inside, through the eye, onto the thing that you were looking at. And so the eye very quickly became a metaphor for the inner light. It's vital that our eyes stay focused on the right thing so that we can stay on the right path. The Cotton Batch Gospel translates the verse, if your eye is unhealthy, as if your eyes are not in focus, that is, with one eye on one thing and the other on something else. Bob Munger um, also said, never forget in the dark what you saw in the light. When our eyes are focused on God, it affects everything we see. Well, that's our text for today. The context of this passage is that it's a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught a new kind of righteousness. It didn't replace the law, it intensified it, so that we're called to a greater righteousness than even the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus talked about a new way of seeing things, so that we would see things through God's eyes, using the lens of the gospel, uh, where the meek inherit the earth, where murder can include not only um, our actions, but also our hateful thoughts, and where we're called to love and uh, not only our friends, but also our enemies. In the gospels, it's clear Jesus is a prophet who's able to see things the rest of us often overlook. 
We often see people through the labels the world puts on them. Jesus sees the world through graceful eyes. My preaching professor says, in the Bible, before faith is a way of acting, it's a way of seeing other people made possible only in the light of Jesus Christ. From now on, we don't look at other people from a human point of view. We see them in the light of Christ. We see them as God intends them to be. The Jews have a wonderful saying that if you had eyes to see, for every person you meet, you could see angels in front of them announcing, make way for the image of God. Make way for the image of God. To see other people not with anger, but with eyes full of grace in the light of Jesus Christ is to see them not only as who they are in the moment, but who they will be in God's future. Faith is a refusal to treat people according to how they're seen in the light of culture and an insistence on treating them in the light of Jesus Christ. You know, it amazed me how often the theme of seeing or light occurs in the Sermon on the Mount. Here are just a few examples. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You are the light of the world, so let your light shine. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. And why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Dale Bruner notes that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples learned righteousness for God's eyes only, and not for the eyes of human beings. Now, this section teaches a similar truth. Single-eyed faith in the living God. The crucified Christ is a window through which we look upon the world. He gives us eyes to see things that the world often misses. Well, what does it look like to see people as Jesus sees them? Well, let me share an example. I had a friend at Princeton Theological Seminary named Doug. Doug was from Baltimore, and his father was an activist minister in inner-city Baltimore. Uh, Doug and his father were walking in the park one day talking about ministry, and his father was sharing some of his discouragement, uh, saying, you know, sometimes I can barely hang on. I just have to feel that what little I can do is a part of some greater hope that only God can give. When they finished their walk, uh, they went over to a uh, pay telephone. Uh, this happened, you see, in the 1990s BC, before cell phones. <laughs> and they went to this uh, pay telephone to call Doug's mom and to tell her that they were on their way home. But before they could get to the phone, a man stopped them and said, spare change? Well, Doug's father 
in the spirit of the conversation, I suppose, reached deep into his pockets, pulled out all the money he had, which turned out to be quite a handful, kindly held it forward to the startled man and said, here, take what you need. The man's eyes grew big and aware that something new was happening, he said, I'll take it all. He took it all and walked away. No sooner had he done that than Doug's father realized, I was just about to make a phone call here, and I just gave away all my change. So he called back after the man, sir, excuse me, uh, just a minute. I wonder if I might have back just one quarter so that I could make a telephone call. The man, himself still in the spirit of this exchange, held out his hands. Here, take what you need. And in that moment, they saw each other, not in their roles as beggar and helper, but in the light of God as his children. For a moment, they were both who they will be in God's kingdom, and God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Advent's all about, to see the true treasure in our midst. And speaking of treasures, uh, let me add a, a brief aside here. You may not know that one of the treasures in our midst here at UPC is a person named Renee Williams. Um, Renee has long taught Greek and Hebrew classes at Fuller Seminary, and she's a fantastic teacher, and I was, a I was really grateful to be able to walk through the Greek with her for today's text from Matthew. And so I want to give her credit for making a wonderful Advent connection for me. Because there's another part of Matthew's gospel where the Greek word thesaurus appears. It's in Matthew chapter 2, where the Magi followed the star to the place where the baby Jesus was. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then, opening their thesaurus, their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The Magi, recognizing God's great treasure of Emmanuel, God with us, in the child Jesus, opened up their hands and said, Here, Lord, Take what you need. Their eyes were focused on the light of God, and so they gladly offered up their treasures to him. Amy McCullough reminds us that this Advent, as the candle's light from the Advent wreath increases week by week, we dwell in the truth that nothing can overtake the coming light of Christ. And the light that cannot be dimmed challenges each of us to find one specific, tangible way to walk right now in the light of God. For the night is gone, the day is near, and the time is now. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
Let us find rest in our finances by opening up our hands and offering Jesus the treasures he deserves. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, like the Magi, we thank you for the great treasure of Emmanuel, God with us in the form of your son, Jesus. So we open our hearts and our hands to you. We offer you the treasures of our lives saying, Lord, take what you need. Thank you for your light, the light that shines in the darkness, the light that the darkness can never overcome. Thank you for the gift of Advent and Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.